Y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. And as you are turning there, there's, there's going to be a quote on the screen I want you to see. This is by C.S. Lewis. Uh, some of you may have heard of him, right? This whole Chronicles of Narnia thing. Anyway, um, C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. You think about that quote for a minute. What do you think of that? Sounds pretty true, doesn't it? It makes logical sense. Even if you don't believe in the teachings of Christianity, you think about what the message of our faith is, that God became a human being named Jesus. He died an atoning death, a brutal death, let people drive nails through his hands and feet, did not resist. And by that death, he opened a door so that anyone, no matter how far from God, no matter how sinful, no matter how, how disgraceful, anybody can come and be one with God, can be right with God, can be a part of God's family because he took our punishment for us so we could be free. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he has power over the grave, over death, over all the powers that oppress us. And now, when, anytime one of us, anytime one of us comes to him and says, I need that, I need that grace that you died to give me. I need to trade my sinfulness for your righteousness. I need to trade my lostness for your, your salvation. I need to become part of your family. We come in and we're born again to a brand new life. We become brand new people with a fresh start. We've got the Holy Spirit on our side, making us day by day into his image. Meanwhile, Jesus is getting ready at some point to return to this earth and reclaim it for himself and set things right. And just like he gives us a brand new life, he's going to give this planet a brand new life and we're going to dwell with him on this planet for all eternity, a redeemed earth that's better than anything we've ever imagined. And that's what we're going to talk about starting October 1st when we start talking about what the truth, what the Bible says about heaven. But that's the gospel. Now let me ask you something. Would God have gone to all that trouble for something of moderate importance? Would God have become a human being? Would he have allowed himself to die if this was something that you could just sort of add to your life as an accessory? You know, I drive a Ford, I drive a Chevy, I drive a Toyota, I drive a Cadillac. I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, I'm a Libertarian. I, I uh, live in Greystone Hills, a river plantation, or in the apartment down the street. And oh yeah, I go to church too. Is it, is it like that, really? Is that why Jesus died? No, of course not. Would the first generation of Christians have, have fought so hard, had, have given their lives, many of them have mar as martyrs to the cause, if this was something that you just sort of add on to your life so you get to go to heaven when you die? Of course not. We all agree with C.S. Lewis here. You either reject it or you accept it. You don't just say, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. Now let me ask you this. What if... What if I interviewed the people who know you the best? What if I interviewed your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, 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 your acquaintances of various kinds, and I said, how important would you say his faith, her faith is to that person? How many of them would say, well, I don't know. They, I, I see him going to church on Sundays. I, I guess never heard him say a bad word, but... Then again, they never really talk about it to me, so maybe it isn't that important to them. You would think if it was really, really important to them, they'd be coming and talking to me about it and trying to invite me in, but they really haven't. See, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. I'm just saying, 
Either Jesus is who he said he was, and this faith is everything it's supposed to be, or it's not. There's no middle ground. And if the Christian faith is of infinite importance, as it clearly was to Jesus, then we should be telling others about it. And that's never been harder to do in this country than it is right now. So we're in this series called Jesus and Unbelievers because I'm not an expert on how to share faith. I'm certainly not a master evangelist, but Jesus was. And so we're looking at these little interactions he had, these little encounters. One of the differences between Jesus and other religious leaders, those religious leaders, we have their teachings, but with Jesus, we don't just have his teachings. We have stories of his interactions with ordinary people. Jesus liked people. Can you believe that? He enjoyed being around people. And, and so he interacted two weeks ago with a man who was a seeker. And we have people, people in our lives who are seeking spiritual truth. They're ready to have these discussions. Last week we talked about uh, people who are outcasts, people who just don't fit in with society and they feel lonely and they feel rejected. And we have to be the ones that love them in the way no one else does. Y'all, this week I got a message on Facebook from a guy I knew in another church, doesn't go to this church, doesn't live in Conroe. He listened to the podcast and he wrote me and he said, I'm Todd. I'm that guy you talked about last week from your school that was the, the outcast. There are people around us who they need the love of Christ. Today we're going to talk about skeptics. And when you hear skeptic, you ordinarily think about an atheist, right? And a person who is like, there is no God, there is absolutely no way there's a God, and who opposes us and is in opposition to our belief system. Uh, I, have, I have friends who are atheists. Many of you probably do, atheists and agnostics. These are good people. But they think that my belief system is part of the problem in our country, not the solution. That, that what we believe as Christians contributes to uh, intellectual laziness, if not ignorance, contributes to the religiously inspired violence and oppression all around the country, all around the world. That the world would be a better place if we'd all just forget about this, this crazy primitive idea of God and just move on and become better people on our own. And there's a high bar there a high barrier for us to try to relate to them the, the truths of the gospel. But we're going to talk about the that today. And when I talk about skeptics, the majority aren't even atheists. For instance, there's 7% of the American population today that are members of other religions, non-Christian religions. That number is growing. Now, when I was a kid... I didn't know anybody who was Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or any of those other faiths. The closest I came was when a missionary would come to our church every once in a while and show us show a slideshow of, of life in Africa or South America, and we'd go, oh, that's someone of another faith. Now, I bet everybody in this room knows at least one person who worships a God other than Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. For those people... Jesus is probably a person of admiration and respect. If they're Muslim, he's, he's a, one of the revered prophets. They believe that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, and is coming, home, coming back to, him, to the earth someday. For Jews, Jesus is seen as a great prophet, a great teacher. In a lot of the Eastern religions, he's seen as, as a sage, a person of tremendous wisdom, but they don't think he's divine. And for them to, to even consider the fact that he might be divine is, would be such a world-shaking event for them. It would mean rejection by, by their family. It would, be, it would mean their rejection of their entire upbringing. That it's, it, this is a very difficult conversation for us to have. 
They're skeptical of what we believe about Jesus. They don't want to hear the gospel. And then there's a 20%, there's 20% of the population who would say, I have no religious affiliation at all. These are the ones who, on a survey where it says, am I Christian, Jewish, Muslim, etc., down at the bottom it says none, they check none. And so we call them the nuns. There's, that's 20% of the population. Now, some of those are atheists, but most are not. Some of them grew up, in fact, a lot of them, increasingly, a lot of them grew up in church. And I know many, sad to say, many of these people. They grew up in church, and somewhere along the way, they got burned. Maybe it was because growing up, mom and dad were somebody on Sunday that they weren't on Monday through Saturday, and they said, I've got no use for that. Or maybe they encountered hypocrisy from someone else in the church, maybe the preacher, maybe the Sunday school teacher. Maybe as they got to be teenagers, they had questions, and they were told, keep those questions to yourself. The devil put that in your head. And they said, hey, I I can't pursue knowledge and and be in church, so I guess I'm going to pursue knowledge. Or maybe they, maybe they experienced abuse. Sad to say, that, that has happened increasingly. Or in some other way, they've experienced shame, guilt, judgment. They still believe in God, but they want nothing to do with the church. And then, as, as part of that 20%, there's atheists, there's, there's ex-church people, de-churched people, but then there's also those people, God isn't even on their radar screen. They're not hostile toward our belief system. They're not favorable toward it. They don't ever give it a thought. I read some years ago about a group of Christian college students who took a mission trip to Sweden. Actually, they were there all summer, and they just went around having spiritual conversations with people. You know, Sweden, like most of Europe, was once mostly Christian, and now it is. there's very, very few Christians in that nation. It's a very, very secular country. And they came home, and they were very discouraged because they said, the truth is, the Swedes, they weren't angry at us when we talked about God. They just didn't have any interest. And we would try to stir up conversation. We'd say, well, don't you want to know what happens after this life is over? And they'd say, no, I've got enough problems as it is. Well, what's going to happen to you when this life is over? Oh, I guess I'll find out when I get there. Spiritual things weren't on their radar screen. They, their concerns were on other things. And we have friends and we have neighbors who are like that too. They're working hard in their job. They've got interests. They've got, they're, they're becoming successful in various avenues. They're chasing kids around just like you and me. They've got too much on their plate to even give thought to spiritual things. And so they too are skeptical. Why would I consider this when I've got all this over here? Now the person Jesus talks to in our story today is sort of like that last group I mentioned. Although this man was, was very religious, he thought he had it all. He had no interest in further spiritual knowledge. His name was Simon, and he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, of course, were the strictest and most respected branch of the Jewish faith at that time. This is one of three times Jesus had dinner with a Pharisee. This man, Simon, unlike his colleague Nicodemus two weeks ago, wasn't actually seeking anything from Jesus, only maybe trying to check him out. Probably skeptically trying to see What inconsistency can I see in this man? How can I prove that he is not the Messiah? And he found what he was looking for. So let's read chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, 
and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him. Do you see that? (laughs) He hadn't asked a question, but Jesus answered him because he heard his thoughts. Let me just stop here and, and, and make sure you get this. This Pharisee is sitting there saying, wait a second, Jesus cannot be a prophet because if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. If he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him because righteous people don't let those kinds of women touch them. He's letting this woman touch him. Therefore, he can't be a prophet and he can't be a righteous man. I've already made my decision about Jesus. I'm done with him. Jesus not only knew what kind of woman this was, but he knew what kind of man Simon was. And he knew what Simon was thinking. Think about that for a moment. Wouldn't it have been a little scary to eat lunch with Jesus? So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the biggest debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What is this woman doing here, by the way? Culture was different, of course, in first century Israel. This was a culture that placed a high value on hospitality. It was a point of honor. If you were a hospitable person, you were a good person. And so if you were a wealthy person and you threw a party, it was a way of showing how hospitable, how generous you were to say, okay, if you're poor, come on in and make a plate. You're not invited to the party, but you come in and make a plate so you can have something to eat too. So this woman coming into this party was not unusual, but what she did to Jesus was unusual. What she did to Jesus was an act of pure worship and adoration. And it made everyone there uncomfortable except Jesus. And when preachers focus on this story, usually they focus on this woman. And that's good. That is a beautiful story. Even though we don't know much about her, we don't even know her name or what happened to her afterwards, this is a picture of worship that, that just convicts all of us. Give your whole heart to Christ. But that's not where I want to focus today. I want to focus on this man, Simon. This man, Simon, who invited Jesus in and instantly made up his mind, I don't believe in this man. Now, how did Jesus respond to him? Because I got to tell you, when we meet skeptical people, we get defensive. As Christians, we get our guard up and we fight back. We argue, we fuss, we accuse, or we walk away. What did Jesus do? Well, let me tell you first three things he didn't do. Number one, he didn't argue. He didn't argue. Jesus could have. I mean, can we all agree Jesus would have won a debate with Simon the Pharisee? Can we all agree Jesus would win a debate with anybody? Your your chances of winning an argument 
tend to decrease when you're arguing with someone who is omnipotent. It just works that way. But Jesus didn't argue. He could have put Simon to shame. He's hearing this man's thoughts, this man who's thinking, this is not a righteous man, this is not a prophet, he's a sham, he's a liar, and Jesus could have said, oh yeah? Well, let me tell you about you, Simon the Pharisee. Let me tell you about all your inconsistencies. Let me tell you about how your belief system doesn't even make sense, and even if it did, you're not living up to it. But he doesn't do that. You see, there are some people in our, in our family here who are good at having these kinds of discussions. Some people here who are good at arguing. And that's not a bad thing. It can be a terrible thing, but it can also be a gift. If you're quick with your wit, if you're bold and you say what needs to be said, God can use that. And, and even if you're not, and, and people want to debate you about faith, it's good for you as a Christian to equip your mind to be able to answer them. And we're going to see that in, from the Scriptures in just a moment. But in your, in your worship guide, I've listed some books you can use to, to equip your mind for having these kinds of discussions or to read alongside a skeptical friend. But here's the thing. The intellectual approach to evangelism is very valid, but I've been doing this for a while, and I still haven't met a single person who has argued into faith. I've never met anybody who lost an argument and then prayed to receive Christ. Now, I've met people who they had discussions with folks who graciously engaged them and answered their questions, and eventually they realized, you know what, all my great doubts just aren't that big. They don't really amount to anything. I might as well trust in Christ. But you're not going to argue someone into salvation. The point is not to win an argument. The point is to win a person. Jesus didn't argue. He was concerned about Simon himself. Secondly, he didn't condemn him. Could Jesus have stood up and said, hey, Simon, you're judging me right now, but someday I'm going to judge you. Someday you're going to stand before my throne and I'm going to expose every sin you've ever committed and you're going to be separated from God forever unless you repent right now. He could have done that. In fact, he could have hastened that moment by zapping him with some lightning from heaven. And I'll bet it was tempting to do so. Probably any of us would have. But Jesus didn't condemn there's a quote that I read a long time ago. Don't remember who said it. I wish I did, but it's been powerful for me. I use this a lot. Get used to it. If, if I get to be your pastor as long as I hope to, you're going to hear this a lot. Sorry. But it goes like this. When you disagree with someone, you can insult them or you can persuade them, but you can't do both. Our culture is very good at teaching us to insult, right? That's the basis of all comedy today. That's the basis of all political discourse not very good at persuasion, but we need to become so if we're going to follow Christ and serve Him. 1 Peter 3, 15-16 tells us the same thing, but from the Word of God. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That word answer is actually a Greek word that means defense. Defending your faith. How does it say to defend your faith? It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Let me ask you something. Do skeptical people always show us gentleness and respect? No. Are we ever called to not show them gentleness and respect? I can't find it in Scripture if we are. In fact, we're specifically called to do the opposite. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Remember who's writing these words. The apostle Peter. Peter, remember, the guy who on the night Jesus got crucified pulled out a sword and cut off a guy's ear. 
This is an aggressive human being. He's not used to being gentle and respectful to his opponents, but he has learned by the power of the Holy Spirit. These people matter to Jesus just as much as I do. So even if they're speaking maliciously about me and my faith, even if they're trying to paint me to be an ignorant rube, even if they're trying to paint me to be a, a, a terrible hypocrite, I treat them respectfully, and my goal is someday they're going to feel ashamed of the way they treated me, and that's going to be part of how God turns them toward himself. You got Peter's word, but here's Paul's word on the subject. He's writing to Timothy. He says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. With gentleness. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, the way you win over an enemy is by persuading them to repent. By treating them with gentleness, with respect. Yes, correcting. Yes, telling them the truth. But doing so in a way that's so gracious that they're ashamed forever calling you what they called you. Jesus did not argue. He did not condemn but he also didn't give up. See, our culture today says that Jesus should have gotten up and walked away as soon as he realized that Simon wasn't into what he was saying, into, into his message. He, he should have said, well, Simon's already got his own belief system. I shouldn't interfere with that. After all, there are many ways that lead to salvation, and I don't want to be an intolerant person who causes religious conflict. In fact, a few years ago, several years ago on Easter Sunday, I remember uh, I, I got my Houston Chronicle. Remember, that that's a newspaper. You know, it's this paper that had news in it. So anyway, um, there was the religion section of the Houston Chronicle on Easter Sunday several years ago. They interviewed six different religious leaders from different faiths, and they asked them the same question. They said, what is, in your opinion, the biggest religious problem in the world today? And five out of the six said the biggest religious problem in the world today is exclusivity. It's this idea that, that my belief system is the only true belief system. My God is the only true God. The only one out of the six who said something different, I'm happy to say, was the Southern Baptist. That was a rare moment when I was actually uh, proud to say someone else did something right in, in the name of Christ. And, and, but why didn't I agree with those five? Because, yeah, it's, it sounds good to say, hey, everybody, everybody's right. But if everybody's right, you know who's wrong? Jesus Christ. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I and the Father are one. I am the door. I'm the resurrection and the life. His followers were the ones that said there's salvation and no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Listen, don't get me wrong. I love being in America where everyone has the same right to belief as I do. I love living in a country that does not privilege me because I'm a Christian, does not privilege someone who's an unbeliever over me because they don't believe where everyone has the same spiritual religious rights. That's the way it ought to be. But I can't serve a savior who said he was the only way and say, there's many ways. Jesus didn't give up. Jesus stayed with this man, Simon, until he had told him what he needed to say. So what did he do? Those are the things he didn't do. What did he do? He confronted him with grace. He told this story. He pointed out this woman. He said, it's really, it really comes down to, Simon, if you're willing to recognize you've got sin in your heart that needs to be cleansed, my father will, will forgive it. He confronted him with grace. This woman was confronted with grace and it changed her life. 
We don't know her name. We don't know what happened to her afterwards. What we know is she was a woman who was known to be a sinner. She had a bad reputation in the community. Probably she had had an affair. Probably she had done something uh, sexually immoral. That's, that's what they referred to as a sinful woman back then. And whereas today that might get you gossiped about, in that world it meant you were a pariah. You were, you were persona non grata. You were not invited to anyone's party. You were no one's friend. And now here's this man, this man Jesus, who seems to be very righteous, seems to be more righteous even than the teachers, who seems to know a lot about God and everything he says about God makes sense and it draws me closer to God, and yet all those other religious teachers ignore me or condemn me, but he's nice to me. He treats me with grace. Could it be, could it be that, that God loves me too? That truth changed this woman's life, but it didn't change Simon's. See, Jesus said this, and we read it a couple weeks ago. I want, to, I want us to read it again, John 3, 19 through 21. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Can't you see that Simon did the math and realized if Jesus is right and everything I've been living up to now has been wrong, it'll expose me. It'll expose all my sinfulness. I've built this careful facade of righteousness and everybody's impressed with me as a Pharisee, but if he's right, then I'm not righteous because I don't love my neighbors and I don't love my enemies and I, I'm not consistent and I don't want him to be right. And there's a lot of people in this world who are like that. The worst thing in their minds that could possibly be true is that Jesus Christ could be Lord and they don't want to hear it. So what do we do with those people? We confront them with grace. And what does that mean exactly? Well, it means showing them unconditional love and respect the way we've talked about in First Peter 3 and in 2 Timothy 2. It means treating them with compassion, with grace like they've never felt. It means listening to them. Do you know that you can actually grow through listening to the things that unbelievers say about Christianity? Because believe it or not, the Holy Spirit can use their words to point out inconsistencies in us. And you can say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to work on that. It means you listen to them. It means you even acknowledge that they're right when they say the church has failed. Let's not hide the fact that the church fails left and right. Historically and even today, just turn on the news. And when, you're, when your skeptical neighbor is talking about uh, the, the priest abuse scandals in the Catholic church or talking about the Baptist church that, where uh, the pastor got into trouble or uh, the, that, that televangelist who, who ripped off a bunch of people and found out he wasn't actually praying over all those prayer cloths that people sent in with their $100 donations. Or find out about that, uh, that church where some awful thing happened. And, and we can say, yeah, you're right. That's terrible. And it makes God even angrier than it makes you. Don't lash out. Don't accuse. Acknowledge. We're not perfect. Serve a perfect Savior, but we're not perfect. Show patience. It takes a lot of patience to be kind to someone who's insulting you. But show patience. Show forgiveness. They don't see a lot of that in the world. Love the poor and the rejected like we talked about last week. When they start to see that Christian people actually love people that no one else loves, that's going to be persuasive. More persuasive than any intellectual argument you can come up with. 
And most of all, pray. Pray for the Holy Spirit to soften their hearts. Pray that God's Holy Spirit will will just do a work inside of them. Will bring other people to speak to them in words they will understand and appreciate. And break down those defenses one by one. And sometimes miracles do actually happen. So I was reading this article a couple of years ago about a woman written by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria used to describe herself this way. She said, I was a leftist lesbian professor of women's studies at a local college. Sounds like the people who sit in our pews, right? She wrote an article in the late 90s. Some of you are old enough to remember the Promise Keepers movement. Promise Keepers, for those of you that are younger and you don't want to Google it, um, Promise Keepers was uh, an organization that had these big uh, arena events, big stadium-sized events where men would gather and they would sing praises and they'd listen to speakers who challenged us to be godly husbands and fathers again, to once again serve our wives and love our kids in the name of Christ. Rosari Butterfield wrote an article for USA Today in which she said that at heart, what Promise Keepers is actually is a way for conservative men to reclaim their homes and to put women back in their place. This is not about, about religion. This is about male, male domination and chauvinism. And she got a lot of mail, as you can imagine. And a lot of it was from Christians. And almost all of it was what she would describe as hate mail. And that did not surprise her because in her mind, Christians were all a bunch of narrow-minded bigots who just wanted to force their beliefs and their morality on everyone else. But there was one letter that was different. And she threw it away like all the others, but she couldn't get it out of her mind, so she fished it out of the trash can. It was from this Presbyterian couple named Ken and Floyd. And it asked hard questions like, where do you get your assumptions? Why do you think this is true of us? What is your actual belief about God? Do you believe he exists? And if so, things like that. But it was written in a kind and respectful tone. And so she wrote him back. And then he wrote back again. And eventually, Ken and Floyd ended up inviting Rosaria over to their house for dinner because they happened to live in the same city. And she went, as she says, purely for research purposes. But that led to other dinners and many discussions. And they didn't always talk just about religion. They didn't always just talk about Jesus, but they got to know each other. And eventually she showed up at their church one day. Now picture what you think of as a crowd of proper Presbyterians. Now picture this woman who, as she described herself, she said, I was a woman with a butch haircut, and so I stood out. And she kept going. And eventually she started reading the Bible. She said, I began to read the Bible the way a glutton eats. I just couldn't get enough of it. And I kept reading and kept reading, and I kept looking for loopholes, looking for flaws, all the while asking myself, can it really be true? Can it really be that Jesus is who he said he was? And think about what that meant. That meant if, if Jesus is who he says he is, that means everything I've been living up to now I have to reject. I, I, I'm going to lose my lover. I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose my reputation in my academic community. I'm going to lose this standing I have in my social circle. Everything that's been important to me is going to be gone. So when she converted to Christ, she said it was like a train wreck. Everything blew up when I came to Jesus. It wasn't a peaceful moment, but that church was there, rallied around her. They became the family that she'd been missing. 
And today, Rosaria, Rosaria Butterfield is a Christian author, a, a wife, and a mother. And she's a testament to the fact that skeptics are people Christ died for. Skeptical people can come home to. But they need to see Jesus in us. And they need, see, need for us to see them through the eyes of a Savior who loves them. 